Good morning. It's great to be here. It's been a while since I've been here. Last time was maybe last summer or so. Uh, my name is Greg. Uh, I'm not going to introduce myself again. Uh, I have one wife, two kids. You can know me by that. <laughs> I, I stand out. And so, and starting, uh, I'm going to be honest because I, when I first heard that I was being, that to be invited here to preach, I was excited. It's like it's been a it's been a while. I was talking with Pastor John, and I was like, "Great! It's be great to share the word. Uh, it's be it'll be really refreshing." And a few days later, I get an email about the passage that we're going into today, <laughs> and uh, I was like, "All right, like, take a look at it. A church scattered, you know, everyday life. That's really good. It's like great, great, great." And it's like. First Peter, awesome, I love First Peter. It's like chapter three, huh? And I look at chapter three, and oh, I see. <laughs> so you can guess where I'm going with this, mainly because if you were my wife, which you're not, wait, probably yes, she is here, you would know the weakness of what I'm about to preach. And so last month was you know, our seventh anniversary to a lot of you, seven years. It's like baby years to a lot of you, right? <laughs> like seven years, I don't even remember that. And so you would know, if you talk to my wife, don't talk to her, by the way, <laughs> the kind of weaknesses I have, the kind of person I am just naturally, inherently, is not geared toward doing something well like marriage. I can't even handle myself that well, barely able to sustain myself, let alone a household. So to have a God that would trust me in this way as to entrust the lives and the future and well-being of another person and kids is, I'll find out one day, it's amazing. What kind of a God would do that. And that's why I'm approaching this from a different kind of a context, perhaps. And I am not only speaking to just marriage relationships, um, but perhaps if you're even thinking about marriage, or this, you'll see in my last point, is something that extends to all relationships as well. And so I'm going to try to make it as real and raw as possible, because I don't want to speak to you right now uh, to the kind of marriage you might have right now at present in public. The context that I want to speak uh, into today is the one you have in your private homes. The marriage that away from all the people is the kind of messy marriage you may have experienced. The marriage that can be at times grueling. The marriage that can bring about a kind of suffering and pain you may never experience anywhere else, perhaps. The context I'm speaking to is mess. So this isn't really a sermon about how to upgrade yourself or upgrade uh, your marriage. If you want this to be applicable to you, and at present your marriage is great, then you will have to downgrade your, uh, yourselves right now in order for this to be applicable. That being said, let's pray together. Father, as we dive in 
into your word today. As we read your word about wives and husbands, and as we discover today who you are, we ask for much-needed grace. We ask for a miracle to do something in our lives and to do something in our hearts that we just can't possibly do on our own. And so we need help. Not even at present when we're here, away from the home, but especially in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of any suffering that we might hit, rock bottom times that we might experience, that you would open us up and that you would Insert your word into us that is powerful. Mold our hearts, we ask, that our hearts would be open to you. Show us who you are, the God that created something like marriage. That we would glorify your name as we create these relationships, whether in the home or out in the church or out in the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, uh, I'm going to break up this sermon into three parts. Uh, first, what are women called to? And then what are, uh, what are not women? Here it's wives. So remember again, this is in the context of wives and husbands especially. Uh, first looking at what wives are called to, and then looking at what husbands are called to. And lastly, I'm going to ask the question, why? They both have different roles, wives and husbands, now, I want to, in the end, try to connect this into why that might be the case and get at to the source of this, why God made it like that. So first, uh, you immediately notice in chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 6, you have six verses that are given to women, or to wives, in terms of what they're supposed to do, what they're called to do, an exhortation given to wives, six verses as opposed to one verse given to husbands. And immediately, some of the husbands here might think, that's right, six verses, because they're being told all these different things to do. They need a lot of direction because they need it. There's a lot for them to you know, build themselves up with. And guys, it's like when you get in trouble when you're uh, young and your parents might try to allocate it or uh, if you are in more trouble, they're going to lecture you more than your sister or brother. And you might think, ha, ah, they need more instruction. So we're okay. You only get one verse. Verse 7. He wraps it up. One verse for men. And so you might be feeling pretty good, husbands, until you read the beginning where Peter says, wives, in the same way, or in other translations, likewise. So you might think, in the same way as what? And so the first thing you do is look back to what Peter was talking about before in chapter 2. And you're thinking, uh-oh. Because in chapter 2, Peter was trying to encourage us while we're suffering under a higher authority. He's telling people to submit. He's telling us to submit to our government because they have been placed over us even if we're abused. Even if the government is not good. Even if the higher authority is just really messed up and broken, submit anyway and you trust yourself to the government, you have been called to be under them. Or even a slave-master relationship. Even you are being just or unjustly treated. You are, being, uh, you are laboring and suffering under 
this person that is placed above you. And with that in mind, Peter is saying, wives, I understand, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And so the reason why you have so many, probably so many verses given to wives is because Peter knows that they need a lot of hope because of who they're dealing with. <laughs> That's just the conclusion that I came to. I'm just trying to look at this as unbiased as possible. And of course, I know it hurts. My wife is also here. It's not easy to say this, but it's so apparent to me that Peter just came out of this context of suffering, of going through unjust treatment. Even though you may be in the right at times, you're still submitting. And that, with that, he says, wives, in the same way, submit to your husbands. Peter was also a married man. He knows. And he's saying, so that if any of them do not believe the word, which was common in that time period, or women to be married to a man who was not saved, who did not know the Lord, so that even if they uh, do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your behavior, of your life. It's amazing because in the end of this, in verse 6, this is uh, further fueling my point here, at the end in verse 6, Peter ends with talking with Sarah, bringing her up as an example and said, hey, look at Sarah, be like Sarah. Sarah called her husband, Abraham, Lord. And guys might be thinking, that's great. This passage is one of the most abused passages in history. More than all the theological doctrines about God, this one really has been abused in terms of wives being submissive and things like that. Because it is clear in the biblical sense that the biblical view of a relationship between a husband and a wife is not what we would call like an egalitarian view. I believe firmly from what I read here that it is really based on what we call the uh, that one completes the other, the complementarian view. And there is a reason for that. It does not mean that there is no inequality. Inequality, of course, is there. In this context, the reason Peter is talking about Sarah calling Abraham Lord, he's not telling you, call your husband's Lord. When you go home, or Lord or Master, that was a term back then, how, uh, how wonderful would it be, husbands, if everything you said, your wife is always calling you Lord. No, it's not so that Peter is trying to uh, degrade women and say, Hey, look at Sarah. Look at what kind of an amazing man Abraham was. She called him Lord. If you were to ask Sarah, wow, you know, talk to her and ask her about what it was like to be married to Father Abraham, the great patriarch, right? From his descendants came salvation, the Israelite nation. If you were to ask Sarah, how was it being married to such an amazing guy? He's the Abraham. She would have probably been like, oh my goodness, it was grueling, it was hard. You don't understand what I went through because of that man. It would have probably be more like that because us in 2016, we revere Father Abraham. But wives know. Wives, you know your husbands probably better than they know themselves. And she would have probably responded something like that. It was hard. It was, oh my goodness, it was grueling. I had to go through all of these things. And Peter yet, at verse 6, says, 
like Sarah who obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, wives, if you also do what is right and do not give way to fear. Do not give way to what is frightening. So you think, what's the frightening thing? Oh, it's because my husband is too domineering or in cases of abuse, something like that. I don't think that's what Peter is talking about here. It's also translated, you are not afraid of anything that is frightening. So it's anything that's like uh, uh, clowns with chainsaws, ghosts, demons, something like that. It's uh, uh, phobias, acrophobia, agoraphobia, fear of public places, claustrophobic, fear of being in tight spaces, octophobia, fear of the figure eight. There's fears everywhere. Plutophobia even, uh, fear of being wealthy. I don't think I have that. <laughs> Macrophobia. Macrophobia, fear of long waits. Probably have that. No, that's not the kind of fear that Peter is getting at here. He's not just being general and saying, wives, you're supposed to be the strong one. You know, if someone is raiding your house at night and breaking into your house, you're the one who's supposed to go and tackle that guy. No, that's not the kind of uh, fear that he's talking about. There's an even greater fear. And wives, you probably are beginning to realize this. One of the greatest fears that you have in your life as you live longer with your husband is trusting in your husband. One of the greatest fears a wife may have. Because the more you learn about your man, your husband, probably the harder it will be to trust someone like him. And I'll confess, you just by nature, not everyone of course, just generally by nature, men are simple. Men, by nature, do not have an amazing, deep desire for life and a desire for God. That's not usually the case. You know the three great vices of men? Money, sex, power. We're pretty simple. We always are craving these things from the day we're born. We're just simple beings. And I will admit, if you compare just the level of desire between wives and husbands, or even men and women, Usually, you see women going after more significance or more meaning, where um, we're more satisfied with um, football and you know, things like that, and our life is pretty good to go. In the marriage relationship, husbands need their wives desperately, whether you know it or not. Especially in a marriage relationship, the husbands need the wives. Why? The great fear, again, that wives have is trusting in your husband. The kind of fear I'm getting is it's more like if you're riding in a car, you're sitting in the passenger seat, and the driver just happens to be suffering from an extreme case of narcolepsy. Narcolepsy, you know, is you're prone to fall asleep at any moment at the wheel. And so that's what it's kind of like going along for the ride. I actually know someone who told me this story of riding in a car with someone who was suffering from extreme narcolepsy. I don't know if I should mention his name. Um, he plays guitar in a church that has a long history of you know, opposing slavery. Um, <laughs> you could tell him, uh, if you ever find out who that is, you can ask him about it. And so he was telling me this, and he was describing it and saying it was one of the most scary experiences he had in his life. He really feared for his life. And you know, we joke around a lot, but that was one of the few times in our lives that we got really serious. And he's like, no, you don't understand. You know, because his life, it was, you know, given to that person in the car, and he's just riding there. He's like, uh, are you okay to drive? Because there's a lot of swerving going on, a lot of people honking from the other way. He's like, are you, are you sure? And he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm good, I'm good. 
A few seconds later, he looks back. Literally, he said his eyes were closed. His eyes were closed. He said, no, are you sure? No, and he would wake up here and there. And so a lot of times he said it was so intense, so hard to trust. He was praying so hard to trust that person. I think that's the kind of fear that Peter is getting at. You are not, don't be afraid of anything that is frightening in your life. Even though you have a kind of husband like the one you do, the one that like uh, Fred Mertz who every uh, morning would wake up and forget where his glasses are and it ends up being on his head. That person who always seems like he's clumsy and wandering around and making mistakes doesn't know what he's doing in life at times. Most of the case is true, we don't. But you trust in that person anyways, even though it doesn't make sense. Usually, trust is given in the context of someone who is capable. Someone who is competent. You go to a job, they're going to entrust you either with their store or with their stuff or with the business. You get promotions because they can trust you with more stuff. That's just the way it is. But biblically, the way that God is calling us to do is so different. He's asking you, first, wives, to trust your husband against all odds. Not because he has a certain quality, not because he's fit, not because he's capable, but because you have been given a specific task by God. And even though sometimes the numbers just don't add up, or nothing sometimes seems to add up when you take a look at your husband. Husbands, if you catch your wives just staring at you for a while, that's what they're thinking. Like, you don't add up. The fear that wives would have here is a fear from analyzing reality. All the odds are stacked against you. All the odds were stacked against Sarah. At least Abraham, you get to talk with God. Most likely, maybe he heard God's voice. And he's like, okay, we're leaving home, going into this unknown land that God has promised. And so she's thinking, she might double get it. Like, um, are you sure? There's so many different ways she could have gone about it. But she obeyed, she trusted him, and they left together. That trust does something. It's not just a blind trust. Because as we read in this passage, the gift, uh, wives, that you have been given is the power to be able to, by your gentle and quiet spirit, that unfading beauty, to be able to have the potential to transform by your behavior, by your conduct, your husband's stubborn heart. Not many things in this world can do that, but maybe one, which is your trust against all odds. So that when the moment comes, and it does, when husbands are lacking confidence to even trust themselves, they will see this miraculous, weird, doesn't make sense kind of a trust coming from the wife, even though they don't trust themselves, and it will fuel your husbands to have a confidence in God, despite all that he is. Secondly, husbands, you get one verse, verse 7. Maybe because it's, uh, is it easier uh, the, to deal with wives? Husbands, in the same way, that's the first thing you see. Like, okay, same as wives? No. Husbands, likewise, in the same way, be understanding or considerate as you live with your wives. Now, there's a little bit of a problem here because Peter's asking husbands to do this in the same way. They're thinking, wait, 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 wait. 
We're not doing the same thing. Isn't why aren't wives? It says here they're supposed to be the weaker vessel, especially in that time period. They were the weaker vessel, weaker physically, status. They they were almost considered to be on the slave level. So Peter writing something like this, he's affirming yes, what we have been given. Yes, wives uh, are the weaker vessel, but they are co-heirs with you. That's the overriding principle here. We tend to a lot of times focus on the weaker vessel, weaker vessel. That's the temporary part. It just, it's fleeting and it goes with the wind. What's eternal there and what uh, exemplifies uh, equality, affirms equality, is they are heirs with you. So of course Peter's not saying, no, there's a difference in equality. No, no, no. There's a difference in role. There's a difference in will and submission. And he's asking husbands in the same way. Well, what were wives doing? Trusting? They're submitting to the husbands? Well, well, we're both going to just submit to each other and trust each other? That doesn't look right. When, you know, they submit to you, and if both people, you need one person to at least lead. You're just going to be submitting until you die. No, it's not that. But husbands are called to likewise submit and trust their wives. It's a mutual trust. It's a two-way street. But the way that we submit is different. Husbands are called to be the head of the household, to take care of the family, of the wife, to care for the wife, to be understanding to the wife. And in the same way, in that way you're submitting. Paul gave a really hefty charge to husbands when he says, love your wives as what? As I love my wife? No. As Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? He suffered, he bled, and he died, even though he was rejected. That's a pretty hefty charge. And respect them. This was unheard of in that day. Respect them. Even though they're the weaker partner, don't try to just aim for equality. And that's what the world wants a lot of times. We think, uh, well, there's such, I know there is a gap between men and women, especially uh, in the past, but still today. And the problem, the way that we solve this problem is we try to always get at equality, equality. We want to be on level ground. Because we, want, we don't want to compare apples to oranges. When we tally the points to see who's doing a better job, we want to compare apples to apples or oranges to oranges so that we know, oh, that I'm giving 50, I want 50 back. I'm giving 80, so I think I should have at least 80 back. And we're always worried and a little bit paranoid about how much we're getting and getting and not focusing on what we're giving and giving. Why would God make it like this? Why would God make it in this way? Why would God even create male and female, create wives and husbands? Because I have a problem with this whole submission thing. When I first read this and see the relationship, it's like the hierarchy thing doesn't seem to be the most efficient. It's better if everyone's exactly equal. Maybe if there was no, uh, no uh, different sex at all, everyone was like one gender or something like that. But God intentionally, for some reason, created male and female. But in our sense, it would maybe make, uh, make sense to try to resolve it with equality. From this standpoint, homosexuality makes sense. You want to measure apples to apples. You want to be on the same ground. You don't like difference. You don't like the hierarchy. Because if you are given different roles, it will always end in conflict. Who's doing who? Who's doing what? Well, I'm doing this. What are you doing? Well, you did this, but I did that. It's always different. Why did God make it so 
messy. It's prone to failure. And the answer to that is because that's who God is by nature. God by nature is three persons in one. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And that's huge. When you take a look at God himself, you see that there's an extreme unity, but at the same time, a diversity as well. No one knows submission more than God himself. No one has submitted more than God himself. God being the greatest and most powerful being in the universe submitted the most. And within the Trinity, between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you have a mutual submission. When I was young, I used to always ask, who would win in a fight? You know, I was asked my Bible study teachers, if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, they got into like a free-for-all brawl, who would win? We just, oh, the Father win. He's the Father, right? The Holy Spirit has some special spiritual powers. Oh, Jesus can take a lot of hits. Maybe he'll he'd win. But the question is irrelevant. Theologically, we say they share the same substance. They have equal power. So there's no submission of power. But when you read the Bible, there is a submission of will. They intentionally, Jesus the Son is submitting to God the Father. God the Father entrusts and also likewise submits and gives things to the Son. And the Son gives and entrusts tasks to the Holy Spirit as well. You have this amazing submission happening so that when the time comes for you to be given hope, God, you find, is an expert at submitting. And the only way that God could deal with someone like you, someone like me, despite all the problems, despite all the brokenness, despite all the messed up stuff you may have inside, the incompetence, incapability, God still trusts you. It's a two-way street, even with our relationship with God. And the reason we find ourselves trusting him is, is he came to us first, and he called us trusting that we were capable to make it through to the end because he would provide that way for us. If you open yourself up to receive that kind of godly trust, a God who even though you make mistakes, you fail, you falter, you sin, you have ugliness inside, he, he trusts in you anyways. Even if you were to give up on him, he does not give up on you. That's the fuel God is asking us to use when you consider the relationship between wives and husbands. So the last question to ask is, who will go first? Who goes first? God went first. But the answer, if we're asking who between wives and husbands go first, I'll answer, you go first. So all of mankind in our relationship, is we're too biased to judge ourselves, but one thing is clear. Even at this hour when the odds are stacked against us. We don't have the capability to be trusted. For some reason, God chooses to trust in us anyway. Peter knew that. God went up to Peter knowing that Peter would betray him three times and said, follow me. And he knew what kind, and he trusted that he could carry Peter to the end. Even at this hour when the odds are stacked against us, even though God could find so many different ways of getting things done, he doesn't waver even for a split second when it comes to trusting us with his love, his grace. He knows it will be abused and taken advantage of, but he's not even thinking of that. Equality, not something to be grasped, right? And in the midst of this, he still chooses mutually to share that Trinitarian mutuality, that Trinitarian love, and extend that to us at this moment.